I think there's so much stigma around mental health that I remember other people even like stopping talking to me, like literally like walking what? in the other direction and not, I think like not wanting to engage. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember like... Hey, honey. Hey, guys. This was a really important. What with me? Sorry. You're gonna say honey to me, right? <laughs> you guys too, but. <laughs> Hi, honey. Hi, baby. <laughs> Hi, guys. And girls. Ladies and gentlemen, on that note, this was a really important episode. Everyone should go listen. Did you like it? Did you enjoy I love it? it. What a great energy. And as wifey said, it's a must listen and must watch. Yeah. For everyone. I think everyone should listen. What's really unique about Nina is that she has lived experience with depression and she also practices. So she sees patients as a psychiatrist. She does research in the field at Stanford Brainstorm Lab, which she founded. It's a mental health care lab. And she also consults for companies and social media on how to better handle mental health care. She's also building a mental health care company. So very knowledgeable with lots of facts and tidbits here. We go into specifics of how to deal with anxiety in terms of bio, psycho, and social. She tells us about when to go see a doctor. She breaks down the difference between just feeling anxious with social anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder, depression. She gives us some tools we can use to figure out where you're at. And I like that she also talked about being able to track your progress, which I feel is really grounding. And the energy is great. Like it was such a, you know, despite the topic, it was such a kind of light, yeah. positive energy I had a lot conversation. Of fun. I had a lot of fun talking to her. It's a great lesson, guys. Enjoy. Yeah, did. Oh, this is wonderful. Hi. Hello. I'm so happy Hello. to see you. It's been too long. We got to get you to Austin. Yes, I absolutely. I was just speaking with your producer and talking about the Austin <laughs> barbecue. And absolutely, I cannot wait to be there and explore all of the wonderful things that Austin has to offer, starting with amazing barbecue. But first, first Jennifer, and then second yes. barbecue. <laughs> yes, I don't eat meat, and so he's recruiting everyone he can <laughs> to go to Terry Black's and Franklin's barbecue with. He, but he practically every time we have a fight, he goes to go eat meat and <laughs> feels better. He comes back yeah, home. That, that's the way he's like, it. I had some I meat. I feel better. <laughs> I did what you can't do. <laughs> meat meat uh, solves all. Meat solves all problems. You know, <laughs> solves solves all problems. So you gotta come over, and I can get my Nina fix, and you can add some joy to my life. Can't that wait. would be wonderful. Also, even just seeing you adds joy to my day right now. And your right? your bright smile, your amazing red, and just all <laughs> you 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 look first of all, first of all, a huge congratulations. You are very thank you. That's amazing. <laughs> and I have to see pictures. I cannot wait to see pictures. I'll hold off on the pictures and I'll use that as a forcing function to get you over here. And this is pink, actually. I made sure I was going to get your favorite color for the momentous day when we could have you on Power Hour. I love that. That makes me very happy. <laughs> Before we dive in, I wanted to ask you, what's been bringing you joy in your life these days? That is Besides a very beautiful me. question. <laughs> you, absolutely. Uh, what's been bringing me joy? So I moved to New York a few months ago and I'm now splitting my time right. between New York and Palo Alto. And I think that one of the biggest things has been my brother and his family are here. So 
brother, sister-in-law, and they have three-year-old twin boys. And what? I actually was there. <laughs> yep. Yep. And that's a handful. Saying, that's lovely. It is. It is. It is a handful. <laughs> and they're, they're going to be my answer for what is bringing me joy. I think that everything, I mean, one, you know, just getting to, I, I had been in California and so now getting to be here in New York and see them, see them on a regular basis, see them growing. And this is something I remember you just get, getting to hear you talk about how much you love your nieces and how important that relationship has been to you of uh, getting to yeah. be a part of their life. And so I think that that has really just been really one of the biggest gifts and certainly sources of joy where, you know, just every time getting to see them, everything from watching them learn how to, how to read, how to, I, you know, as they've now taken in, how do you just like learn and pick up so many amazing things? And every day, every day just feels like a different adventure. And I, I love, I love all of that. It's so energizing and, and just really grounding in a really wonderful way. Yeah. I'm so excited for you. I feel like when my nieces were born and now I have four of them ages six to 15, I felt love that I never knew I could feel before. It's like, how can you love human beings this much? But also it's like they really have helped with my growth as well. It's like the 15 year old now is a teenager and just watching her evolve and become her own person. And she's really taught me to let go and really allow her to be who she is, you know, which is, it's not trivial. It's not easy. And I know parents are going through this and will resonate, but they they've been teaching yeah. me so much and my favorite thing is to spill the tea with them so i'm excited <laughs> for you to <laughs> i'm excited for you to get to your routines with your nephews what are their names yeah nikhil and prashant nikhil and prashant yes lovely yeah. and they're they're actually they're they were born 10 days before i or are we were we're you know similar i guess they were January you're the same star sign that i'm <laughs> I'm yeah, I'm uh, January 27th. And so even like we share our birthday month and everything, which I feel like is special too. That's so wonderful. Yeah. Also new yeah. life is so great. They're so full of energy. I'm sure it gives you a ton of perspective. Yeah. What are you proud of yourself for in the past week, Nina? Ooh, I love that. Well, you know, one of the things that I've been, that I have realized is so just valuable and important important to me is, is physical exercise. It's something that I tell, mm -hmm. I prescribe to my patients. I, you know, I have read all the data. I know how it's just such a wonderful, important part of life. And yet it's still been a really big struggle to make that a daily part of my life. It's one of those things where I look at my values and I say, I know I want to be doing this. And every time I do exercise, I feel really good about it. And yet there had still been a lot of barriers. I think me, and I would really just be honest, like me getting in my own way, I think in a lot of, a lot of ways and fear um, and having barriers that have prevented it from really being, being a part of my daily life. And I think that what I'm proud of, so even I'll even just say today is this morning, I woke up at five. I, I do really like waking up early. I like to wake up early and go to bed early, but I woke up at yeah. five and I ran outside and I used to run Ooh. outside um, about five, six years ago, I was running. I had done a bunch of half marathons and I stopped that a few, a, about five years ago and I just kind of hadn't gotten back into it. And so this morning, running outside a few miles, just kind of getting over that real mental hurdle, I think, of having not done yeah. it for so long, it felt really, really good. And so I think both the combination of you know, kind of remembering for myself why this is something that I really want to be a part of my life and 
starting, what I'm trying to really realize this week, I think, is how do I make those changes in my life so that it is easier to make this something that I look forward to and start my day with? That's kind of part one. And then part two is, you know, this thing where there are other, certainly I've done other forms of exercise, but specifically there was that thing, this block I had around running outside and doing that uh, and having having done that. It feels so good. And even just already today, you know, I feel more calm, yeah. I feel more grounded and energetic. And so that is something I would say I, I, I feel I feel proud of. Well, big kudos. That is definitely something to be proud of. They say if you're crushing it from the beginning of the day, it just gives you the momentum to do it for the rest of it. I relate with this notion of it's hard to make you, I feel like it's always hard to get started again with exercise. You fall off the wagon and then once you get in the groove, it's much easier to continue afterward. I really love exercising first thing in the morning. Just, I feel like I exercise and I run mostly cardio running and some strength, but I feel like I do it mostly even for just my mental health because I just love how I feel after I feel like I'm on top of the world. Let's go bring on whatever challenge. I'm going to hit it out of the park. And I just love that feeling. And I feel like mm, there's this Casey Neistat. Uh, he's a blogger and he got really big on YouTube. My husband is a huge fan. He makes me watch all these videos, but they're very entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> so, but he has this quote, which I really resonate with, which is, a day with running or exercise is just like any other day. And a day with not running or no exercise is a terrible day. And that's almost how I feel now because I feel like if I don't exercise in the morning, I'm 60% at my capacity. And if I do, I'm at 100%. And so it's almost shifted. And because of that, I really look forward to doing it. It's it's like I really look forward to the process or the activity. I think for me, I like listening to audiobooks or podcasts or just things where I can learn something that's interesting, but that doesn't feel like spinach. And so I almost look forward to continuing this book or listening to this podcast or hearing from this person. Um, and then I love the feeling afterwards. So that's how it's really been helpful for me. I don't know if you've had I, tips for... Yeah. I, I, I really like that. No, and what I'm hearing you say is is that it's the combat. It's the, it's twofold, right? It's one, the physical activity itself, and the joy and the feeling you're going to get those the dopamine and everything, you know, dopamine endorphins, everything running through your body and how you feel good after that. And then secondly, what you're getting to consume, right? And, right. and knowing that you're whether that's a podcast or music or you know whatever it is that that is. And I, I feel that exact same way of something to look forward to. I think that is this sort of extra motivation where you're really like looking forward to, you know, what, what's coming next and everything. And then, so I really like that having those two things then that ultimately motivate you. Um, I really like that. And I, in fact, today I, I ran with, I ran with my, my brother-in-law actually. Um, he started this company called Daytona Health that is really, I think, just kind of changing the way that we really think about physical health and wellness, combining it with mental health and wellness and well-being. And so he actually said to me, I'm going to run with you this morning. I'm going to like help you, you know, do this. And one, doing yeah. it with someone, I think, made a really big difference too. It is really nice to have someone else there to share exercise with, I thought mm -hmm. was really helpful. Um, but because we were doing it together, we were talking and certainly there are going to be days I'm running by myself. And I really like what you said about, I think having, finding some things I really like to listen to will be a really important part of that. Um, and in general, I love that. I love Audible. I love listening to different books on tape or on, on Audible. And so whenever I am at the gym, having different things to listen to, I think is fantastic. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to add to that actually, which is I'm going to, 
I'm going to give a shout out to my therapist. Um, I love ther- therapy actually is probably the other thing where I just like, it's another thing where whenever I show up and whenever I'm in both in therapy and reflecting after therapy, I just feel so glad to have shown up in that way. And so right. grateful for one, the opportunity to have that time to have those reflections and everything, um, you know, with, with my therapist. And one of the things that she brought up was, uh, you know, really recognizing that exercise is a way for you to invest in yourself and take care of yourself and show up for yourself. And I think that's something that, especially, I think it came up a lot during the pandemic that we don't a lot, a lot. And I, I'll, I'll say we, I, I, a lot of people, especially women, and especially I think women of color, we're not really, we don't grow up learning how to do that. I think it's something that what I've realized in my own life is going through medical training. It's something where I've certainly learned professionally how to take care of other people, but that element of how do you take care of yourself was never really something that I necessarily grew up with. I think what was modeled incredibly well, I, I'll even, you know, by, by, by family certainly was how do you take care of others? How do you show up for others? How do you really give so much of yourself to other people? But then not what, what I'm really learning now, I think is how do you do that for yourself? And I think exercise is just such a great example there. And there are many more, and there's many aspects of, of, of self-care where it really is, how do you take that time? How do you tell yourself, this is what you need to do for yourself? Um, and it's something I hear every day from patients. It's something that I think we as a society, I, I'm really hearing so many conversations around this over the last few years, especially. Um, and again, I say, I, I think it's, it's certainly something everyone's dealing with. I think women deal with it even more so. Um, because of the way that we get socialized. And it's so, so important to um, really, one, acknowledge that this is something that is good for you to be doing. And, you know, certainly we have these conversations of when you can show up for yourself, you can show up for everyone else and everything. Um, but even just making it, but, but even some ways I feel like not making it about, yes, you show up better for others, but really just saying it is good and okay to just show up for yourself person, just period there. First and foremost, no, I so resonate. And for me, it's about start with an hour in the morning, start my days with an hour for myself. Just take care of Jennifer, get her outside, have her go on a run. It's all, it's meditative. Like I get to think, I come up with some of my best ideas on this run. Sometimes I like running with Marcin. Honestly, he runs way too fast. (laughs) It tends to be stressful when I run with him. And sometimes I'm just like, I just want to run by myself. Why don't you go at your own pace? I'll go at my pace. And I listen to something or, and it's fun or I'm thinking, and then I come back feeling amazing. Uh, and, and then I'm happy and here my cup is full and I can share with others, but I do love the distinction of it shouldn't be a thing you only do to show up for other people, but you're also worthy and you should be taking care of yourself too. I think it also depends, right? Cause some people don't like running. So whatever it is that you like doing, if it's a team sport or something else, whatever it is, if it's dancing, I love dancing. So I go to dance classes as well, uh, and feel so energized after that. So whatever it is yeah. that is right for you figuring that out and making sure you get that time and to do that. I love that. I love what that. I was going to ask actually, what do you, what do you do? What does your morning look like? It's usually, uh, four days running, two days strength, one day dancing. I think I want to add more dancing in though, but with running, we have amazing trails in Austin. It's 
part of what I love so much about the city. And we live like two minutes from the trails. It's, it was a big thing that I wanted to live next to trails so that I, because I know that I love doing this so much. And so orchestrating my life around the things that I, I, I need and love and that give me happiness. Uh, and so it's also the fact that it's a beautiful run by the water. The water is so nourishing to me uh, and in nature with all the plants and the trees. And you see all these dogs and people running and everyone's happy and it just really great mood booster. That's fantastic. Yeah. And we know just, you know, scientific research shows and, and I, both intuition, I suppose, and scientific research, like now even five minutes in nature improves your right. mood, decreases your stress, improves your immunity. You know, the combination, n- nature is just so such a, you know, it improves life in, in all ways. Right. And it, it completely yeah. makes sense. And combining that with exercise, it's just really the best thing. That's wonderful. Yeah. I try and bring nature in as you can see. I have a spa. I try and create a spa environment at home where I can. I love that. Um, I see so many totally. plants. That's really what I see. I see plants everywhere. That's amazing. Everywhere. Everywhere. I'm on track to becoming my mom. You should go to my mom's house. It's a jungle. It's like, wait, where is the path? Where can I walk? <laughs> I'm not there yet, but give me a few more decades. <laughs> How do you feel uh, when you have plants around you? just so calm and happy and yeah, very in touch with myself. And I think some of my favorite moments are just turning on some nice relaxed music, maybe at the end of the day, mostly Sundays uh, ahead of, ahead of the week and just reading and it's just the best. I feel so re-energized and rejuvenated with the plants. That's awesome. That's awesome. What are you, what are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? I am reading a bunch. There is, have you read Union by one of our classmates, Jordan? Oh, I am. Yes, yes. I actually, I have it on Audible and I've been, I've I've probably got half, you know, I ran into, so one of our classmates wrote and and one of his law school, I'm for the audience, one of our classmates and one of his law school classmates um, wrote this book called Union and they are on different sides of the political spectrum. And they started basically going on these long car rides and like trips across the country together. And over the course of you know their time together, they had all these political discussions and realized that it was a, one, I think a really unique experience and how they, the two of them were kind of able to understand the political divide we have in our country. And also then how to have meaningful political discussions when you're you know, at opposite ends of the aisle, if you will. Um, and yeah. I actually ran into him in Palo Alto. Um, Who, about, Chris like, or Jordan? So, uh, Jordan, Jordan. Yeah. Okay. And I'm literally like, oh, chatting with him tomorrow for the pod. So don't tell the guests everything they have to tune in. To, I will. I will. Okay, that, that, that will be my, yeah, that was just my teaser. I'll, I'll end. That was the teaser, y'all. That was the teaser. For, it is and I actually, that, um, got me to listen to it on audible. And I love, I love listening. I love listening so much, just like, you know, even speak about podcasts. Yeah. There's something so nice about certain types of books, really being able to listen and enjoy it that way. I love reading as well, but I think listening is one yeah. of certain things that are nice about that. And um, yeah, what a phenomenal story. And can't, I will look forward to hearing the two of you and power hours with <laughs> Jennifer and Jordan. Yeah. I'm already, already excited. It'll be great. What are you reading that you recommend? You can also tell me started, offline. Yes, yes. I just started uh, a flashback to, I think, like the 1980s, Carl Sagan's Cosmos. I love nice. space. I, 
<laughs> love everything about Very this. nice. I actually was watching the TV show, mm-hmm. All Mankind. It's on Apple TV. It's a phenom- beautiful, phenomenal TV show. And that I think re- reignited my love for space. When I was in first grade, I was an astronaut. I think, I feel like most kids love Star Trek. And, <laughs> oh, and absolutely. Actually, and adults too. You've got one right here. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I remember when I was in first grade, I, I was an astronaut for, for Halloween and I actually mailed, because this was, this was 1990, I guess. I mailed a letter to NASA asking for an application. And they sent me back a manila envelope with an application because this was like, oh, I love that. Online. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, just have always, always been fascinated with space. And this TV show, again, kind of just like re- reignited that. Um, and so really have loved thinking about, you know, what that the world looks like. I want to go into space. This is, you know, and I'll, I'll say yes. publicly, you know, in the yes. next 20, and 30 years, I want to go into space. I think it would be just a phenomenal experience. And so yeah. think it's Cosmos. What's really lovely about it is it's really kind of using space and uh, kind of like ast- astronomy and space like to, as a way to really bring together so many uh, aspects of life as well, like even biology, chemistry, history, culture, and, and just showing how so many like disciplines and aspects of the world are connected. It's really, really beautiful. So that's one. The second thing I'm reading is Code Breakers uh, by Walter Isaacson. Mm. It's the story of how CRISPR was developed and yes. talking about kind of the major players in that in that world. And so both I, I really love biographies and just learning about amazing people and their journeys. And I think so just like Power Hour, you know, really getting to mm-hmm. understand who people are and how they came about these great discoveries and things like that. So th- those are two things I'm really liking right now. That's amazing. Those are great recs. I regularly say I think CRISPR is one of the greatest inventions of our time. It's going to propel us so much further in terms of healthcare, personal understanding, and being able to take control of our health. Speaking of personal stories, my dear Nina, I'm going to bring this back to you now because you have a phenomenal personal story that I want to get into. So I'm going to set some context for listeners. Nina grew up in West Virginia. I know your dad is in healthcare. Is your mom too? Yes, they and were they both med- classmates. That's how they met. In India, right? Medical school classmates in India. That's right. And my mom is a pediatric oncologist. Dad is a radiation oncologist. So this is just very smart family is all I have to say. And then Nina went to Harvard undergrad, Harvard med school, Stanford residency, got her Stanford MBA. Nina is a best-selling author. She served on Obama's healthcare committee. She started Stanford's first mental health lab called Stanford Brainstorm that y'all should check out. She's the chief medical officer at a phenomenal mental health startup called Real that we'll talk about later. And you also just started teaching, and I believe you developed the curriculum for the United States' first mental health care course. Um, what I want to start off with, Donina, is the fact that you yourself personally had experience with depression while you were going through medical school, which I think is so interesting that you had this personal experience and are now helping others as a psychiatrist in this space. Would you share what that was like for you? Absolutely. I would love to share that. And I, I really love starting off with that, Jennifer, because I think that when I think about my professional life and now being in mental health, Really, all of that journey, I think, goes back to having had that personal experience. And, 
you know, I, as you said, you know, I grew up in a healthcare family. My parents are physicians. Many of our relatives are physicians. And I had done work in healthcare and a lot of public health work, I think, as a growing up as a teenager in college. Um, and so had been very, you know, interested and engaged in healthcare broadly, but really knew nothing about mental health. It was something that we never talked about growing up in my family. You know, my parents are immigrants. I think it's kind of a very common experience in a lot of immigrant households that mental health that doesn't get, get talked about um, generationally, yeah. culturally and everything. And it was something that I myself, you know, has just really wasn't that aware of, quite frankly. And so, so much of what I, so much of the way I show up today, I think really does go back to having had that experience. And the term we use in mental health is what we say lived experience, the lived experience mm -hmm. of, you know, having, having had struggles with mental health. For me, that was, uh, that was depression. And specifically the diagnosis I had was major depressive disorder. Um, I'll actually even jump ahead to say that while I, I did have depression, I'll talk about that more in just a minute. Um, I had depression and I, I would say that I, I no longer struggle on a daily basis with depression, but what I do struggle with on a daily basis is anxiety. Anxiety is something that I still live with today, both I think social anxiety and general anxiety, as well as situational anxiety, which we'll talk about as well. Um, but I say that to kind of, the reason I want to share that is that um, one, you know, depression was the first thing that I think I really experienced severely and was able to um, address, understand as a diagnosis, you know, um, but also that mental health and ch being challenged with my mental health is also an everyday struggle as well. Um, and so I want to kind of put that in, into perspective. So yeah. let me go back though to, to medical school, which is that, um, you know, I, um, I was, uh, I, I ha had depression and um, I think in terms of what that looked like, um, I, there basically, there was a time where I was having in, in sort of in the middle of med medical school in our, in our second year of medical school, um, I was having a really hard time um, getting really like concentrating, concentrating on what we were doing in school. I was able to kind of engage in other, other sorts of activities, but like specifically, you know, learning what we needed to learn in class, I found to be difficult. Um, even there were times where like getting out of bed in the morning was hard. Um, one of the behaviors I noticed that this was something where only once I got better, I was able to look back and be like, oh, this was like not quite, was not quite normal. Um, was was what I would I would say kind of the, the casual word for this is flakiness. I think that what actually how that showed up was that me having a really hard making hard time making commitments. For example, I would uh, make plans with friends and feel like I wanted to actually go. I, I am a very I'm a very extroverted person, and I do yeah. often feel better when I'm around people. But then what would happen is I would often then in the like you know maybe an hour before or something feel so overwhelmed that it was actually, it, it was hard to then um, want to follow through with that. And I would end up like spending an evening by myself, for example. Um, yeah. And so there were a lot of elements of depression, um, feeling, you know, uh, feeling kind of decreased, uh, you know, decreased motivation, um, decreased uh, struggles, struggles with my concentration, um, and really just like decreased hope, period. A lot, but the biggest thing I would say is negative self-talk. Of, and, and a lot of ruminating over negative self-talk, like, you know, I uh, feeling really guilty, like mistakes I had made, you know, what's wrong with me? Why am I, you know, why am I doing this? What did I do wrong? And just kind of like that, those negative thought loops and spirals kind of going, going on and on. Um, that's what I was experiencing. Um, how I ended up ultimately getting diagnosed was um, actually doing uh, neurocognitive testing. So 
um, the medical school actually said, um, it, oh, I, I remember what, sorry, I'll just go back. What happened actually was I, I failed an exam in medical school. I failed one of our exams. It was our uh, hematology, our, our hematology exam. And they recommended doing testing to understand my study skills. You know, could there be something where maybe I'm not learning or studying properly and doing some of this like psychological testing could help identify some holes in that. And then that would help me, you know, learn better. And what was really interesting in doing the neurocognitive testing was a couple of things came up. One was that my reading speed was, is it turns out is a 17th percentile. And that's phenomenally low, phenomenally slow. And that was something where um, I actually, I never knew that before. I knew that I was a slow reader and knew that um, I, I remember like in junior high school and high school doing different like academic competitions and stuff and, and seeing that other people were reading faster than me, but kind of just figured they must be fast, not that I was slow. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but, yeah. but learning that was actually incredibly helpful because then I did actually do a speed reading course and I and, and I have now tried to learn different things mm. around how do I read faster. And, and, you know, in medical school, there's an enormous amount of content you have to go through. So that was definitely helpful from the study skills perspective. But the much bigger thing that came of that was that the, the, the psychologist who did that testing diagnosed me with major depressive disorder, um, as well as that, actually, as well as uh, attention deficit, uh, attention deficit disorder. Um, and so uh, both of those, realignment, both of those were things that I was going through. Um, I felt, I remember when getting that, those diagnoses, um, I actually felt incredibly grateful and the sense of yeah. relief because I remember, you know, realizing that so many things I was doing, I was like, why am I doing this? Like, this doesn't quite make sense. I'm not acting in the way that I want to be. And finally having an answer for why I was, you know, thinking in this way, behaving in this, these different ways was so, um, so actually, like, there's almost this like sense of relief around, oh, this is what's going on. This makes sense. And I say that because not everyone feels that necessarily around having a diagnosis. Sometimes right. people, I think, feel um, very stigmatized around having a diagnosis. Sometimes people don't want to focus on this as a label and things like that. And I think everyone has a different sense of, should we get diagnosed? Should we not get diagnosed? But I'll just share my own personal experience, which was for me, I found it very helpful. The next thing beyond that was once having the diagnosis, okay, how, what are we going to do about that? And so the first thing was I started on medication, uh, Wellbutrin, which is an antidepressant medication. And I'm so grateful because that medication worked for me. Um, really, I remember just within a few, within a few weeks and, and even just a, a couple of months, um, what it went, what happened was, you know, I said reading was a hard thing for me. Reading and consuming the um, content we had to for medical school felt like this really big, big task. Mm. It just like oh, so much effort I had to put into it. And within a few months of being on that medication, I actually had this memory of like waking up in the morning and going directly to one of our one of our textbooks, picking it up and and reading and having this ease of reading that I just had never had before. And the yeah. and really realizing how you know, when my, when my serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine and all those like neurotransmitters, when those levels were better in my brain, that everything became that much easier, you know? So I feel yeah. really grateful that um, the medication worked for me. On the flip side, one thing I want to really talk about is that um, therapy, I think is tremendously important. There was so much stigma, I think, still around mental illness when I was in school that I actually, my academic advisors actually told me I should not get therapy. And specifically that, and I, I, let me, let me reframe that. It wasn't that I shouldn't get therapy, but that 
um, taking the time out of the day, which really, you know, if you think about the, the school day or rather, you know, the medical school day, which is like 5 a.m. to 8 p.m. Very busy. Much, if I was going to go see a therapist, that would mean pretty much like taking two or three hours out of the day to go get that treatment. And that I would, I, you know, I would look like a, I, I would look like I wasn't committed to being a good medical student and showing up for medical school and doing that. And I think that really highlights a big problem in medical training around, right. you know, being able to get the help that one needs. And so I'm so grateful that medication helped. Um, after finishing medical school and going to residency at Stanford, I was able to finally start really proper therapy and therapy has helped in the as well. But let me pause there and say that how did yeah. I actually get to where I am today, right? So that was just that experience. I want to share that experience with folks to understand what that was like. No, But the much bigger thing is that I think that having then had that whole journey, really one of the most painful things I dealt with was, you know, having had this experience with depression and, you know, overcoming it over the years of medical school. I guess it was three years of medical school from when I was first diagnosed to when I graduated. It was really this sort of like two steps forward, one step back type of um I would say almost if you graph it like that, you know, like things got better yeah. and then they got worse, better, worse, better, worse. And I think that that's a really natural kind of trajectory. At the end of the day, what it really showed me more than anything was that how mental health is such a huge problem in our society. And I was so lucky to have had a diagnosis, to have had access to health insurance, to have a medication that worked the first time I tried it, to be surrounded by people who then were supportive of me getting help and getting treatment, not, you know, with that exception of what I had mentioned about, you know, not the, the therapy side of it. Um, at the same time, I remember wanting to be really vocal about this experience and sharing with my classmates at the time that, you know, I, I had depression, here's what's been going on. Some people yeah. were incredibly supportive. Um, I remember even people saying like, oh, wow, like, I think I might be depressed or I'm realizing hearing your story, maybe my mom is depressed. Let me try to get help yeah. for someone. Other people, actually, I think there's so, so, so much stigma around mental health that I remember other people even like stopping talking to me, like literally like walking what? in the other direction and not, I think like not wanting to engage. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember how powerful that was, especially because these were also, these were medical students, right? And I think that it does really like hit home for a lot of people. I think it was maybe uncomfortable to think about and deal with, but what that showed me is just how ingrained stigma is and what a big problem it is. So that's actually ultimately how I ended up getting into mental health of just realizing my, my brother, my brother, Neil is a year older than me. And um, he is someone, because I think he's a year older than me, I've always looked up to him and always really respected his advice. And one thing he said to me is when thinking about your profession, think about the biggest problem you can solve and take like take that on basically and i think before this time i've been interested in healthcare but didn't necessarily have one specific problem i was really felt like this is what i wanted this is what i want to do what i found so yeah. fascinating about mental health was that one how interdisciplinary it is uh, you know i think that there's so many components to mental health there is clinical scientific but also economic political cultural you know there's so many facets to why someone has mental illness and then, some, and then in order to solve mental illness and make it better, we need to address all those components, right? We need doctors, we need scientists, we need folks in media, we need politicians, we need economists, we need people we, to talk, like change culture and how we talk about mental health. There's so many aspects like that. And I think that I felt like this is something that over the course of 50 years, I can really be a part of all of this in a very exciting way. And that that felt really uh, tremendous. 
Um, so that's how I ended up really kind of getting into mental health period. Um, psychiatry then was something where I felt so, um, the word I often use when people ask me, what is it like to be a psychiatrist is, um, is sacred. Yeah. The experience of working with patients around their mental health, I think the bond that we develop, the way that we talk and, and are able to then help them, I truly feel like is a sacred relationship and it feels incredibly, um, meaningful to get to be a part of that journey for people. It is really meaningful. What you described about your experience, that sounds really stressful and really hard. And I think lots of people may be thinking about, maybe I have some of these symptoms. What would you say in terms of when to go seek help, when to go get tested? I love that question. And I would say today. Okay. And the reason I say that is it's never too late early so the way, right, right, say, never, yeah, never it's never too early and i'll actually give you a statistic which is um and the, here's the way i'll frame this so let's say you had stomach pain that wasn't going away how long would you take to get help how like you know you you have a you, you realize your stomach's hurting it's not getting any better yeah. maybe you take tylenol or something right how long would you take to go, to go maybe go to the emergency room or go see a doctor about that probably within a week maybe three within four week, days yeah. depending on how think, intense the pain is yeah, and that's absolutely right. And what if instead of a stomach ache, you were having a symptom of mental illness, like depression, anxiety, how long do, do you think you would take to get help there? I know people take forever. That's like, right. So makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You should, you, or you less. should go three to four days. The reality is in the <laughs> United States, the average amount of time it takes from first having symptoms of something related to mental health to seeking professional help is not a few days, like it would be, you know, if you had a stomach cake, not every yeah. few months, it's 11 years. 11 oh, years. That's painful. Breaks my heart. Yeah. So, yeah. so I think because that's the culture we're living in, where we really only address mental health when it's really too, um, I don't want to say too late, but very, very late right. in the process. And people wait until you're in crisis, right? Until you're in that crisis yeah. moment where it can't get any worse. That's when you go seek help. That all needs to change. We need to think about mental health just like we think about any other aspect of health where we need to think about it in a prevention aspect and and where like if you are feeling even something, go get help. Yeah. There's no harm yeah. in getting help. If anything, the earlier you address it, the easier it is to get treatment, the easier it is to get better. So do it today. And where should one go? Where should folks be going? What's the best way? What's the first step? I think the first step, you know, and it certainly it, I think that um, for most people, I would say the first step is going to your primary care doctor. I think that okay. for most people that ends up being the kind of the primary care doctor is that person who kind of oversees what your medical care looks like. And they can be that first person to then help determine what's going on. And if they need to refer you to a specialist like a psychiatrist or a therapist, they can do that. But the primary care doctor really is meant to be the person who has that overall view of everything related to your health. And so I think that would be the first thing to do. Okay. Really helpful advice. I want to touch on something similar, a similar topic of anxiety, which you mentioned that today you still deal with social anxiety and there are other types of anxiety as well. And I know that after COVID, there was a spike in anxiety levels. We became lonelier than ever. About 40% of folks have generalized anxiety disorder. 
but also a lot of people are just feeling anxious day to day. So can you help me break down the difference between generalized anxiety disorder and these other types you mentioned, social, et cetera, and how practical tips for addressing those? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think the first thing I would say when thinking about anxiety actually is helping to frame anxiety. And there's a lot of fear around anxiety. But the first thing I'd actually say is that anxiety by itself is actually not a bad thing. And Mm -hmm. if you think about what anxiety is and why it exists, it's actually initially a very good thing. We're anxious because if if anything, it shows us this is something I care about. And what's really interesting, if you look at anxiety versus performance, a little bit of anxiety actually helps people do better. And, and if we think like evolutionarily, you think, you know, you see the, you see the um, mountain lion in the distance, yeah. right? And you, you get a little right. anxious. <laughs> you know, yeah. That's a really good thing. That's literally survival. It's keeping you alive. <laughs> it's keeping you alive, right? So anxiety yeah. actually is a good thing. Like if you were not anxious and like you saw that, you're like, eh, whatevs, that's okay. Yeah. Let me go, let me go play with its kids. Right. That's, that's called, that's called evolution, survival of the smartest and the fittest. (laughs) A little bit of anxiety is actually a really good thing. And you imagine like why you're a little bit anxious before an exam or before a big interview, right? Those are all normal. That's normal anxiety. It is, it is also normal for everyone to feel anxious around things like that. Right. And I would, I would separate there where what I would call situational anxiety, like an exam, Mm -hmm. an interview, things like that. Um, compared to, in this case, you asked about generalized anxiety disorder, or, you know, I, I, I would say, you know, a, a pathologic version of anxiety, again, not trying to label or stigmatize anything, but that's, you know, that's kind of how we think about that. Um, so one, a little bit of anxiety is a good thing. And it's helpful, it's beneficial to you. Um, and two, completely normal for everyone to have some anxiety. Now, where it then becomes less helpful is I think if we think about both the duration, like the length of time one might be anxious, as well as the severity of how anxious are you. And so Mm. part of that then is that are you so anxious then that you're unable to do what you might need to do, right? So let's let's even use like the the test as an example. Is it that you're a little anxious and so that gets you to study and you maybe like, you know, you you're so motivated to study and go, you know, spend a little, like a half hour extra studying and then you end up doing well at the exam, or you're so anxious that you like, can't even like hold on to the pencil or you, you know, mm. you stay up all night because you're so anxious that you stay up all night and you can't even like be awake for the exam or like you can't focus because you, you, you've lost sleep and stuff. Right. So that's kind of the way to think about the se- severity around anxiety. Um, and obviously, you know, the latter is when, it, you know, that that's kind of the more problematic anxiety. Um, then we have Got what it. we talked about as GAD, generalized anxiety disorder. And what that means is where, um, and, and they're actually criteria, and I'll, I'll give it even like a shout out. Um, if you Google um, uh, GAD7, that's called okay. the, uh, so GAD stands for generalized anxiety disorder. GAD7 is the GAD7. And it's the scale that we use to actually measure how anxious someone is. And so basically, mm-hmm. um, and, and there's, there is a similar thing for depression. It's called the PHQ-9. Um, and it's yeah. same if you can Google PHQ-9. And these are these scales that we use to basically figure out, are you anxious? Are you depressed? And if so, how depressed or anxious are you? 
And the reason I throw it out there, actually, I think it's actually really helpful for folks to take this and even see for themselves where they are. Now, I'll give the little caveat of just because if you take this and it says, you know, mild or major or mild or moderate anxiety, that is not diagnosing you with generalized anxiety disorder. You need to actually see a doctor in order to get diagnosed. But I think it can be really, really useful, even just as a little metric for yourself of, oh, am I a little anxious or am I really, really anxious? And that can then help you realize maybe I need to go talk to a doctor about this because this is actually even a bigger problem than I realized it was. Um, and the difference between a little bit of anxiety versus GAD is that for GAD, you're anxious about a lot of things. And the way it's affecting your life is it's preventing you from doing what you need to do, whether that's showing up for work or taking care of your kids or getting proper sleep. Um, it's the impact of the anxiety that that's how we think about it. Got it. Makes sense. So if your anxiety is preventing you from showing up in the way that you are meaning to show up, then see your primary care physician. Exactly. Yeah. But that's the, I think that's the best way to think about it. And, and same for depression. It's like, you know, every, it's normal to be a little sad. It's normal to be a little depressed, especially if you had a breakup or, you right. know, as, especially dur during, during the pandemic. Right. Or lonely or yeah. lost a job or the economy. But if it's then preventing you from being able to work or do an interview or call or your homework or whatnot, then see your primary care yeah. physician. That's really helpful. That's exactly and right. actually, yeah. before I move on, I want to say I so resonate with what you're saying about how a little bit of anxiety is really helpful, actually. I think it falls in this space called you stress, right? You want to be just a little bit more stressed than normal, where it just gives you this kick in your butt to perform at even highest levels. Your little bit of anxiety before public speaking or before the test, like you said, just gets you at a heightened attention state and helps you perform better. But it's when you go past you stress into really, really stressed out and that that's what you want to limit. So you want to be outside of your comfort zone, but not all the way in the deep end. That is perfect. Absolutely. Absolutely right. And then you asked about tips. So tips for anxiety, yes, right? And, and how, how do you address anxiety? How do you make things better? I have, I have, other, I have a, few, a few, and I think that if you even just take a step back, um, I'll, I'll, what I'll explain is so the way that in mental health that we conceptualize both why mental health exists as a problem, as well as then how to help people get better. The term we use is the bio psychosocial model. And I'll, I'll break that down. Yes. Biopsychosocial. What that means is biological, psychological, and social. And what does that mean? So it starts with why does mental health exist as a problem? And if we say, okay, biopsychosocial, what that means is that why, why, am, why was I depressed? Why am I anxious, right? It's a combination of three things. Biological, which refers to our genetics, and the like neurotransmitters in our brain, that's like the, bi the biological component. Psychological, which refers to the psychology of it, right? How do I talk to myself? What resilient skills have I built? That side of things. And then finally, we have the social, which is everything from um, historical. How did I grow up? What was my childhood like? Did I have childhood trauma? All the way through, what's my everyday look like? What are my work stressors? What, is my relate what are my relationships like? And all of those factor into then what your mental health looks like today, right? So for example, um, if you think ge genetically, if, if, if half your family has had anxiety, high likelihood that you'll be anxious, right? If we look at it socially, 
the whole pandemic, everyone's environment changed. So it's very likely then that we, why, why we, many, many people had more anxiety, had more depression, struggled more with substance use. It's because the whole social element. So that's why mental health exists as a problem. What's great about the biopsychosocial model is we can use that same framework to then understand how to treat mental health. So biological treatments include medication as well as other forms of treatments like um, another example of treatment would be uh, psychedelic medication, psychedelic, uh, psychedelics have become very popular, I think, nowadays in terms of how to address mental health. Uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation is a newer treatment that basically uses magnets to um, stimulate different parts of the brain that we know correlate with anxiety, depression, mania, things like that. So those are kind of the, the medical and the uh, biological elements. Psychologically, we have therapy. So things like cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, different forms of therapy that we can learn and help change our thoughts and our behaviors and, um, and ultimately our feelings. So feelings, yeah. thoughts, and behaviors, that's kind of really the realm of therapy. And that's how we, that's what really what therapy offers. Then we have social. And social really, as I said, means everything from your environment, your history. But the reason I really wanted to give that biopsychosocial framework is because then to answer your question of, so how do we address anxiety? That's how I want to break it down for folks is really, you know, you can think about medications and other forms of things like transcranial magnetic stimulation, psychedelics, things like that. Therapy, want lots of forms of therapy that are tremendously helpful. I think CBT is amazing and wonderful. Dialectical behavioral therapy, amazing and wonderful. Uh, and, and what I'll say quickly, really quickly about therapy is um, I think what's important to understand about therapy is that there's no one type of therapy. There are actually a lot of different types of therapy. And just like with exercise, um, you know, it's, if you, maybe you don't like running, but you really like soccer, mm. right? So mm. there's going to be, there's going to be, there's going to be some type of therapy that will likely resonate with you and will help you get better. And just like, um, and, and so I think what it is, is it's about finding that type of therapy that will help you. Um, so for folks who are interested in therapy, you know, it's, it's helpful to find what that is. And for folks who maybe have done a little bit, but felt like, oh, this wasn't for me, or I don't think this helped me get better. It might just be that that type of therapy wasn't right for you. But let, let, just like with exercise, let's find something that does help you. That, that's what I'll say there. Yeah. Um, and then the third thing, though, is social. And so that's what, what I want to talk about. Uh, the things that I think really are universal and work for everyone, where, whether that whole spectrum, whether you're a little bit anxious or super, super anxious, that can help everyone get better. So first is sleep. Sleep is the foundation for health, well-being, well-being. Yes. That's like the yes. core of everything, right? Get your eight hours if you need nine Take care of yourself. Exactly. And sleep with when sleep is when sleep is better. Just that's kind of how everything else gets better. And what's interesting, actually, is we see when it comes to mental health, we see that when sleep is decreased, that that or, or increased, actually, that's often one of the earliest signs of mental health be, uh, going downhill. And so that's why it's mm -hmm. really really important to be proactive about keeping your keeping your sleep, you know, well. Um, then I would say what I love, I, and this is actually how I start my, my own day, um, mindfulness, meditation, and gratitude practices. I think that those two are tremendously valuable and important. There's amazing scientific evidence. Every day, a new scientific article basically comes out saying why <laughs> mindfulness, meditation, deep breathing, and gratitude exercises just, again, help across the board with everything from decreasing stress, 
improving resilience, improving mood, but even things like improving yeah. your productivity. Helps yeah. with that too, you know. So I think those are those yeah. are really wonderful. Um, physical exercise, as we you know, we talked about at the beginning. Physical exercise, I think, is like if there's one magic thing that we have, if there's one like you know silver bullet or, or like magic wand, it is physical exercise. It is just that that thing that truly it helps in every way, head to toe, every aspect of health. It, it, it is just ma- truly magical for. And so, same like you know, finding. I think with exercise, it's just finding what it is that you enjoy doing. Um, and, and, and five minutes is better than zero minutes, 10 minutes is better than five minutes, you know? And so even finding little ways throughout your day to increase your movement is just going to be wonderful. So physical exercise then is the the next thing I would say. Um, and then I think, uh, well, there, there's a lot of things I can add in as well. Nutrition. I think nutrition is something where, you know, people now are say like, you know, food is health, food is, food is medicine. Um, what, and, and you are, I think you are tremendously good at this. I remember actually you, um, telling me, I remember, I have this distinct memory of our Stanford uh, business school cafeteria and I was eating, I was eating a snack between class, which was literally like bread and butter. Bread and our, butter. Our, I remember. It was bread and butter. Our I was like, Nina, cafe. you can't eat just bread and butter. Where are your vegetables? Where are your leafy greens? Let me take care of you because you're taking care of so many people. And you're like, okay, mom, how <laughs> exactly. easy you put on my exactly. plate? <laughs> no, I have to tell you that, and, and like, it was a baguette. It was a, it was a French baguette with, right. with, with, with butter, and and I remember one they had a good French baguette, but just but, butter, but, like, so it's carbs and fat. It was just, just butter. butter. It was just which are great, but you gotta mix it up. But there was there was no protein. <laughs> I had no protein. It was not going to sustain me. And I I remember being so grateful that you were like, girl, what is that? Yeah. Like busy running between classes, like, like really thinking about what are you putting in your body? Like it's so important. Yeah. And I'll tell you something. I was at Harvard medical school. We literally I know. nutrition, our nutrition education and like, don't want to call it call. I don't want to call on Harvard medical school, but I'm going to do that. <laughs> um, this is also, I will put content. This was also 10 years ago. I, I hope now, I think now that it is Nutrition is now a Changing. broader part of medical education. When I was in school, I think that it was like one week or or maybe it was like one day a week for a month. It was something like that where I would say the total amount of nutrition education we got was no more than like one full week, basically. Um, and I think, again, I think that's changing because we realized how important it is. But like, it is like literally the core yeah. of what we're putting it ourselves, right. you know, but like, we don't talk about it. We don't think about it as health. We talk more about take this pill instead of the wonders, right. that, like knowing, okay. these yeah. greens, knowing always have protein right. truly. Like I, I went, I, I graduated from Harvard medical school and didn't know until I started like reading about nutrition, the importance of like always having protein with a meal, you, you know what I mean? And so I think yeah. nutrition is just so critically important. And, and we know that there are tremendous links between even like like salmon, I think, for example, like and and helps decrease anxiety. Like we know there are a lot of links between mood and food, for example. Um, and the final thing I'll say is human connection, community, social mm. connection. Um, there's a lot of research. We are social zone. creatures, human beings. Exactly. We That's need like we need other humans, are, right? Yeah, yeah. There are these research around blue zones. Blue zones are the regions of the world where people yes. live a decade longer than everyone else, right? And yeah. what they see, like in Italy, look to see in Italy. Yep, there are these like like islands of Italy, basically parts of Japan, 
and other regions of the world where people live a decade longer. And so researchers were trying to figure out, you know, why is it that they live a decade longer than everyone else? Nutrition is a big part of it. And specifically, like the Mediterranean diet is something that always gets linked to better health outcomes. The Mediterranean, Mediterranean diet is exceptional for health. But the one thing they said was like the actual single biggest factor in longevity was community and social, that social connection, right? Like having yeah. those bonds, those relationships, people are looking out for you. And so I think, and, and like we know that in the United States, we're in a loneliness ep- epidemic, right? Um, yeah. And so really thinking about who are your people? Well, what does your community look like? How connected are you to people? That ultimately, I think, is a huge thing, decreasing anxiety and just increasing overall well-being. Nina, this was so tremendously helpful. So many jam-packed, powerful nuggets in there. I want to say, I think it's really hard when we lived, we lead such busy lives to pack all of that in there, but it's about finding ways to sneak them into our schedules and really prioritize ourselves. Like you said, with exercise, for instance, today I didn't have as much time, so I did a quick 15-minute sprint, which is much better than nothing. I'd much rather do longer, but hey, I did it and I feel great and and I, I got to fit it in. In terms of food, it's about can you go to the grocery store and just make sure you always have healthy options? Maybe try and not have healthy options at home so that it's easier for you to make the good choice. And because when you're tired, when you're hungry, when you're stressed out, you just will reach out for the bread and butter or the unhealthy snack. And, and how can you just be there for yourself in your worst times by just thinking ahead and preparing. And the thing you said about community as well so resonate because we are such social creatures. I think we all resonate with this through COVID. It was very lonely and finding ways with Zoom calls or five-minute calls. It doesn't have to be a whole hour thing or 30-minute thing to just check in on your friend, see how they're doing after that presentation or whatever job thing that they had going on and just makes you just fills me personally with joy. So I hope we can all try and sneak those in and no day is perfect, right? We, it's all a work in progress and don't beat yourself up when you don't do it. And tomorrow's another day. That's absolutely right. And and I, I did, I, I purposely wanted to get all these things out there because I think that it's really helpful to have this really yeah. toolkit. And I think you're absolutely right. Like it's <clears throat> not in a way to feel overwhelmed, like, oh my gosh, I need to be doing all of these every day, but it's more like realizing, Hey, even just tomorrow day, take one of those things and try to focus on one of those things today. And then the next day, either, you know, make that one thing a little bit better or take another thing. And it's all about building. And these are all building blocks for overall well-being in life. You know, another thing I need to do, I need to drink more water. That's something I'm not good at. And <laughs> everyone says, like, I, I, you know, I feel like people who like always carry around water bottles, I have not been one of those people and I need to. And my primary care doctor even called me out on it. She was like, you are, I think, probably hydrated. And so I'm trying to drink. Oh my goodness. And also only a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I am um, always so- drinking water and always peeing as a result. I can also recommend maybe getting flavored water or like getting electrolytes to add to your water. I don't know if it's the taste. You want something sweeter. I really like sparkling water uh, and we have this sparkling water maker. I'm always drinking. I love my favorite drink is cold water. <laughs> it's the best I, I love water too. You know, I have to, I have to tell you actually. I actually don't drink coffee. I don't drink coffee, and I, whenever ah. people learn about this, people are always like, "Oh my god!" I, I think because also like I'm a you know I'm a yeah. You're so busy. Here. Like yeah, I'm, I'm a, like, <laughs> so I'm high very, energy. You know, like, <laughs> how, how do you do it? Happy person. 
Everyone's like, like, I don't believe you. Like, of course you drink coffee. Like, like you must have like a drip of coffee, like always throughout your day. Like, I, just, I don't like the taste. And so I just never, I, I just ah. never started drinking coffee. And so it's never been a part of my life. But whenever I hear people talk about like what coffee gives them, I'm so jealous because it just like, you know, mm. it wakes me up in the morning. It like makes me feel good about everything. And I'm like, that is amazing. I wish, I wish I had coffee. But the other thing I don't be jealous. Because... They're just hooked on this drug that you're not hooked on. <laughs> We're all jealous of you. <laughs> well, what I actually wanted to bring up because you talked about anxiety is I actually wanted to bring up alcohol. Um, and, and this is in some ways right. like a public right. service announcement, if you will. Um, I PSA, less alcohol. So during the, during the pandemic, about a, it's been probably about a year, about a year ago, I completely stopped drinking alcohol. And I, and, and I'm not, I don't, I'm not saying everyone needs to stop drinking alcohol. I just want to share my own story around that. Um, yeah. And uh, well, and what I'll say, what, I, what I'll say is what we know from a medical perspective is that actually all of the messaging around like, um, you know, oh, like resveratrol and like, like being good for your heart or like, it's okay to have like a little, like, I think in general, sure, like, quote, it's okay to have a little, that's, that's probably true of everything, right? But what we know, and more studies have now just come out, basically showing that alcohol is just not good, period. And I think that the way that yeah. we think today around tobacco, and we realize now, like, you know, tobacco really is only a bad thing. That is how I think we are starting to and only will continue more and more to realize that alcohol is the exact same way. I think there's so many parallels where, you know, it's this thing that's been like just socially accepted. There's so much marketing behind right. it. It's something that we do socially. And so we kind of like make it okay, but it's really not. Right. And, and I think that, um, that we've almost given like everyone this prescription to say, it's okay. You can do it, but it's not helping anyone get better in any way. If you know uh -huh. what I, if you know what I mean. Um, and the reason I bring it up as relationship to anxiety is what I realized for myself is that I think that I realized I was kind of like self-medicating in, in a way of um, realizing yeah. oh, that I drink a little wine that makes my anxiety go down. And I was, and now what I realize is, okay, I need to address the core anxiety. I'm so glad I'm not yeah. drinking anymore. And I realized I was you know, addressing, I was, I needed to start addressing the anxiety and, and not be drinking. Um, but also that for a lot of people, and this is very common, I think that during the pandemic, that's why we saw some yeah. people drinking a lot more. Um, but that, um, you know, there are a lot of things like that, where you are anxious and people turn to other things. They turn to substances. It might be alcohol. It might be uh, uh, cannabis, um, you know, other things that are there that people turn to, to address anxiety um, and really trying to, I think we as a medical community are really trying to rethink the way that we um, help educate people on this around, again, yeah. decrease your use period across the board and how to really, um, how to help people uh, really like, live a life that's just healthier in the long run where they are either yeah. decreasing or stop, stopping use of most substances. Yeah. No, I so love that you bring that up. It's kind of crazy if you think about it, that we have this hall pass to this drug where now most times when you hang out with someone, you go for dinner, the waiter asks you, would you like a glass of wine or beer or whatever your friends are drinking? It's just so normalized and expected. And I think it starts little by little. And then to your point, you're a little stressed from work or you're studying or something else, like maybe you have too much going on with kids or whatnot in your life, or you're worried about finances. And you notice that when you drink, 
you feel a little bit more relaxed and then you say, I'm going to have another drink and another, and then you just become dependent and you're waiting for the evening to have a drink or, and it spirals like that. I love also what you said about how the medical community is driving toward alcohol, like we did with tobacco. I actually want us to talk about social media because I'm curious whether we are driving toward social media in the same way, like we were tobacco. And I'm so curious what the effects of social media on our mental health are. Uh, I know you worked with Pinterest through your lab at Stanford Brainstorm to help them uh, develop more compassionate searches on the platform. I know both kids and adults use the platform. Before we talk about your work there, can you tell me what's your impression? Do you feel like social media does have implications to mental health or are all these just observational studies? Tremendous, like the, the huge, huge, huge social media leading to both improving and worsening mental, mental health. And I would say, so the first thing I'll say is that, yeah, the first thing I'll say is that social media deeply impacts mental health. Now to break it down, as I said, it can both improve mental health and it can make it worse. How does it improve? The way social media improves mental health is really actually around human connection. That's one of the best things that it does. And we talked about why that's so important. And you can imagine, right. you know, like I grew up in a small town in West Virginia, and I always think about like, um, especially like one of, I think the biggest amazing things that I've seen in my own lifetime is how, uh, you know, really everything we think around LGBTQ has just gotten so much better than how it was when I was growing yeah. up. And I imagine kids who like my thank goodness who it's, thank goodness, one of the best things that we have in, you know, that, that we've done mm -hmm. in our society. And I imagine like my classmates who, when they were growing up, really didn't have anyone to talk to about that and how it must've felt so liberating to be able to connect with someone online who was going through that same yeah. experience, maybe come, you know, like, come, how do I talk to my parents about coming out? Or how do I even like find other friends who have had the same experience, right? And like what mm -hmm. that is like and how building relationships online gives that to you is really, really wonderful. So I think the best things that social media gives us from a mental health perspective is that sense of connection and community is, is amazing. The second thing actually is just education. And, and, you know, part mm -hmm. of it is like even just learning, like, for example, learning, what are the symptoms of depression or how do I get help? Like there's so much education that comes from social media that I think is really great, it, whether that's Wikipedia or, or, yeah. or TikTok or, you know, wherever you're getting that information. That, so information and community connection, amazing. Now, the negatives, though, are a lot. Um, and what, what I'll actually say is that when we look at studies, um, basically what we see is that the longer people are on social media, we see increased rates of depression, anxiety, substance use, body image issues, as well as things like suicide and self-harm. And right now, so I'll, I'll, that, that's, that's the first thing to know is that there were, there are Let me huge, pause huge, you. Huge, mm -hmm. When you say the longer, do you mean the length of the session on a particular day or the length of time on which someone's been on a platform? Both. And so, okay. so, and I think, so both, it's both the amount of time that you're spending in a given session, the great, and because I think it's a greater likelihood that you're going to come across that sort of content as well mm. as the longer you just spend period, right? Well, like, you know, from day one through day 365, because I think it's additive. Like if we look at the area under a curve, basically, you're just getting more and more and more. And so it's mm -hmm. going to increase the likelihood. 
Now, what's really yeah. important here, we're going to put our, put our statistics hat on for a minute, which is that <laughs> let's all do it. the research so, let's, <laughs> let's do it. All <laughs> research so far, these are all what we call correlations, meaning mm-hmm. that we know there is a correlation between the length of time you spend and an increase in depression, an increase in suicidality. But what it's not yet saying is that it's a causation, meaning we can't mm-hmm. say directly that social media is causing depression, right? And I think that's a really important distinction. Why we can't yet say that is actually just because we don't have the studies yet to show it. I think that there's a lot more research that's being done. The research studies need to be better and more robust. And part of it is like, it's really hard to control for certain things. You can imagine like when you're online, you're not just on one platform, for example, right? You're doing so many different things. And then even let's say you are, let's say you have depression, right? Like there's so many things you need to control for. And so you can't just say social media caused depression because it's like, it's not just you're on social media. It's like, what aspect of social media? Like, was it a particular platform? What did you consume on that platform? So there, I, I think there's a lot that needs to be done in that whole research world to try to help figure mm. out a lot more nuance around different aspects of, you know, what is good, what is bad, what's causing what. But, but at the same time, I think what's really important is just taking that big step back and saying, Research is going to figure that out as, as we move forward and in the future. We also, though, know that all these things do get worse. And so that's where we need to really mm-hmm. start. That's what the starting point needs to be. Um, and so what I'll say is there are a few nuances within that. One is that well, I mentioned time. Um, yeah. What I think what a lot of research has said is that um, for the most part, you're going to get the benefit that you need out of social media, like talked about, you know, education, information, connection. Probably after about that first hour you're spending in a day, most likely mm-hmm. after that first hour, you're not, the returns are really negligible. Like you're not really getting anything beneficial. I think when people talk about going on these spirals or these loops or having a hard time getting off of the platform, when they say, you know, I'm, it's, I'm going to, I, you know, I'm still on the platform before going to bed or I just keep swiping or something, right? I think that that is where one has become kind of mindless in terms of how you're consuming and you're probably doing that in hour two right. or three or four. And so yeah. that's really where I think we need to learn how do we, one, better self-regulate. And actually some of the work that our lab, our lab is actually currently working with TikTok. Um, and uh, nice. our lab at Stanford Brainstorm, and this actually just came out about mm-hmm. a month or two ago, uh, is actually we, put, we did different features around screen time management. And what this is, is, you know, just similar to how like on the Apple iPhone, I'm an iPhone user. So I, I, I know how the areas on the iPhone, which is I know on the iPhone on certain apps, you can basically say, you know, I don't, I want to limit my time on this app to 10 minutes or 15 minutes or an hour. That same thing that you can now do on TikTok, where you can basically say, you know, I want to only limit my use to 30 minutes or 60 minutes. And I think that's how you as the user having that ability is really, really important. And then um, that really helps you make those changes and every kind of barrier that you have to then have a notification pop up and say, okay, you know, time is done. Um, And people can also like, people can also decline, right? Like I'm thinking of Netflix where it says, Hey, are you still watching? You know, and it's like, I am, and I'm going to keep watching. (laughs) I am binge watching this. I am binge watching this. Okay. I'm going to keep watching the West Wing or something. But, but it's such a good, it's such a good, having that is a great nudge. It's a good nudge. Right. It's a good nudge. Exactly. Yeah. 
So that, that's, that's, I think, that first thing to come into play, because ultimately a lot of this is like, we know that all these things get worse. So what do we do then practically to help all of our behavior get better? Yeah. So what are some of the practical tips you would recommend for us and then for especially kids? So you have two nephews. I have four nieces. The oldest one's 15 and have Snapchat and TikTok. They love TikTok and Instagram. And what are some ways I can help nudge them into good practices without obviously being overbearing? Like they need to make their own decisions. They're their own human beings. Yeah. The first thing, actually, I'm really glad you brought up kids because I think that what's so important is actually just recognizing that the way that you and I consume social media is so different from what it's like for kids. And that's just because of developmentally, kids have it like their frontal lobe isn't as developed as it is, you know, for for you and I. And so what actually we see is that when they are consumed, the same thing that you are consuming and I am consuming and they are consuming, they're actually taking it in very differently. And what that means is that they're a lot more susceptible specifically to images and video mm. than you and I are. It's harder for them to make What do you decisions. mean? What do you mean by, okay. That, yeah, that and it really actually, so, so frontal lobe functions are like what we call like executive functions, things around making mm-hmm. decisions, what, um, how you, like what you see and how you're able to make decisions based on that. And what we see is that for for anyone, basically uh, like teenagers, kids, teenagers, even Mm -hmm. early adolescents, is that they are basically like, they're that much more susceptible to what they're seeing. Um, And I'll even give an example. So, you know, I I am 38. Um, Facebook started, I'll even just use this Facebook. So Mark Zuckerberg was actually my college classmate. And so, you know, I, I was on Facebook. <laughs> I didn't know that. Fun story. Fun fact. You yes. hang out with I'm Nina actually. enough, she'll keep surprising you with fun facts. <laughs> I thought I knew them all, but this is great. <laughs> more, more Tom. I, I, because of this, I'm actually, so we were, we were like, we're the same year and everything. I'm actually the, like the 1000th user or 1100th user of Facebook. My roommate mm-hmm. is actually the, like 47th user of Facebook. Because she signed mm-hmm. up, she like got the email on our college listserv and like signed up. She was an early up. adopter. I signed up, right? I signed up like two days later than she did, and I was already the one. Oh, I was already wow. one thousand, you know, like just to give you a sense of how, yeah. how popular it was already, right? Um, but I say so. I was, I was in my uh, sophomore year. It was my sophomore year that Facebook started. Um, so I was, you know, I was, I guess, uh, what nine, nineteen years old. And and the reason I say that is, you know, we were such a digital native. So I, you know, so mm-hmm. my gen, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a millennial. I was not a digital native, right? Like I remember the first computer I had. I remember like, you know, the first phone, right. I, Me I, too. Flip phone was, you know, when I was in high school. Right. And so yeah. I didn't <laughs> grow up having all this stuff every day. Right. And so that's, what's different. You and I didn't have that. Our older generations didn't have that. Your nieces, that's all they have know, always had that. Right. They've yeah. always had that. And they don't know a world without that. I think that's really important because when we are consuming these things, we know that that world is not reality. They don't really know mm. that because that's all they've seen. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's actually, so, so I think that is key. And even I'll just use an example around like images. So for example, like you and I know that a lot of images we see on social media are Photoshopped. They don't know that. Right. Right. They see, mm, okay. you know, it might be models. It might be like looking at right. like body image issues, right? We know that yeah. so the t- time, like, and for gir- girls are that even more. Girls, girls worse. Are. Yeah. 
yeah. so much worse. And that like already comparing you know, each other, thinking, oh, I should be skinny like this model, or I need to be cooler or funnier, et cetera. Totally. Exactly. And, and what you bring up actually is really important. Another point around social media is social comparison. So one of the worst parts mm-hmm. I would say about social media is, well, and actually this is also social comparison and social media also is interesting because for most or for a lot of people, um, when they compare themselves to other people online, it ends up, it can be a negative thing where they look at other people and they feel I'm not good enough. I need to be better. And so social comparison is negative for some people. Actually, social comparison is positive where they look at that person and it actually ends up being motivational and inspirational. And so ah, again, okay. it, 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 so it, so again, so like what's interesting there is that from a psychological perspective or behavioral perspective, social comparison by itself is not bad. It's more like, how are you as the individual mm-hmm. going to take it? If you take it, it as a, I can do better. I can like be my best. Or do you take it as a, oh, I'm not good enough. My life is not good enough. I'm not worthy, you know, sort of thing. Um, and, and that's what ends up happening online. But to the point of social comparison, when it comes to body image, you know, so many, so many kind of false images online. And again, we have been educated to know that's not real. Your six-year-old niece has not yet, right? So the My six-year-old is not on social media or the 15-year-old. The 15-year-old. And, okay, the 15-year-old. So, yeah. so it sounds like so, helping her understand, hey, by the way, this isn't really what it actually is like. What do you think this thing means? Kind of having those critical conversations with her, critical thinking conversations. So exactly, exactly what you said, conversations. I think the absolute first thing that any parent, but not even just parents, like loved one, aunt, Mm -hmm. right? Any teacher, the first most important thing for anyone to do to try to help mitigate these risks of social media and these, these kind of negative aspects of social media is having a conversation and starting with like creating that safe space for kids to know mm. that they can come to you and talk about it and then creating the space for them to share. What are they seeing online? How is it making them feel? What do they think about these images? What do they think about what they're seeing? And then to really create that, that you know, dialogue between you and, and your, in this case, you know, your nieces to really try to see, because the thing is like, it, what, what's actually incredibly really benefit, helpful is like, you can then understand how are they perceiving things, interpreting things, to, right. what are, are their patterns? Exactly. Yeah. And why that's really helpful then is that, you know, inevitably right now it might be that they're looking at cute puppy videos. Right. But like, what if then they start, they start to see darker things, more dangerous things. They mm-hmm. see things related to, you know, drugs or suicide or even, you know, like sexual content and things like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and this is not an issue of if it's an issue of when, right. That's the yeah. reality that we're living in today. And so a lot of parents, I think also have the sense of like, do I just forbid them from seeing it period? I mean, you can, but like, ultimately, like you're going to see it at some point anyway, you know, you know what I mean? And it feels like a lost opportunity to have these conversations with them because to me, it feels like preparing them to enter the world rather than leaving them completely unprepared. And then they go see them anyway. And it's like, they have no tools in their toolkit to handle this. You nailed it. You absolutely nailed it. I think that's exactly right. And it's, so it's having those conversations and creating that space for them to be able to start to understand what they're seeing so that they can come to you and you can talk about things together. Um, that ultimately is giving them the, the best toolkit to, to do it. There are also then some really practical things. I think I, I actually recommend to everyone. One, the first question you asked me, I think, is what has brought you joy? I love that question, yes. Jennifer. It, that's a wonderful question. And, you know, I, you know, I am actually, so I, every day I start my day with gratitude 
the first thing I do when yeah, I wake I up imagine. in the morning is I think about like what I guess I think about the previous day of what you know who whom or what am I grateful for. If it's a person, I often text them and say, you know, you're my gratitude mm. for today. Uh, I think you've received some of these texts from me. Yeah, I did. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I really, I really enjoyed that. And what I want to add to that, actually, because you asked this question, I really liked it. I want to add to that. Um, I think maybe a combination of like what brought me joy yesterday and what is going to bring me joy today. I, I think it's. A, I love that you asked that question. I think it's a really important thing for people to be proactively thinking about. Um, both to yeah. acknowledge, you know, the past as well as then to then create your day around what is going to bring you joy to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so love thinking about what brings you joy. And so I'm going to go back then to social media is what I say to people is when you're to be real, a lot of, I think social media consumption and why it ends up being harmful is that we are consuming in a mindless fashion and the mm. mindfulness to our consumption, the better. And so where that starts with is thinking what in your social media consumption is bringing you joy. And I love that. What is making you more? And then going for it. Yeah. And then going for that. Exactly. So for example, if you realize that one account you're following just always makes you feel bad, start, stop following that account, right? Like unfollow that. They don't deserve your time and energy. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You don't have time for it. Yeah. And then, but then, no. and I think people sometimes, are, I think overall people are pretty good at recognizing, hey, that's not, you know, that's getting me down. Let me unfollow. I think actually the next step then is to be proactive and think what brings me joy and add more of that right. to your life, right? Whether it's puppy videos, whether it's your knees, whether it's like, you know, art. Whether it's friends like, like Nina who are so inspirational and they just make you feel good about what's happening in the world. Just get more so of that, that in your life. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And in fact, I'll give, I'll, thank you. I told this to me and I really loved this, this visual and I probably be, being a math nerd in high school, I love this as well. And <laughs> what they said is when, when thinking about people in your life, think about yeah. does, is this person basically like addition, subtraction mm. or multiplication, right? And so like, you know, do they add, do they add a little or do they take right. away? Or is it multiplication, mm-hmm. right? Where they just like add so much to your life, and yet and yes. the audience can't see. But I'm like doing these big yeah, gestures of like moving my. <laughs> they arms can because we're on YouTube. You can go on YouTube <laughs> and watch this conversation. <laughs> yes, you can see her arms. <laughs> I, I love that. I actually, I, I mean, it's, you know, right? I mean, it's a separate topic, but like, who who's in your life? I think that's also a really good thing. Um, thinking, are you surrounding yourself with people who are bringing more to your life or are these yeah. people draining energy from your life, right? Is it subtraction? Yeah. That way? Um, and, and, and similarly, when thinking about social media, are the accounts you're following, are they, or even just the things you're doing on social media, are they making you feel better or are they making you feel worse? If it's worse, stop doing that. If it's better, do more of Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that's a lesson I learned in my early mid twenties. And I started being so much better at ruthlessly evacuating people who are subtracting in my life. And it's so great. If you haven't tried it, you got to try. And then how did you do that? Once you realized that someone was subtracting from your life, how did you do, what steps did you take to to do that? And I ask because I think that's hard for people oftentimes. Yeah. It's interesting because there's not even that many steps to take if someone is proactively always trying to 
contact you and you just don't enjoy the interactions, be nice, kind, be kind to the person. I'm not saying be an asshole to them and just say, Hey, I'm busy right now, or maybe another time, or you can just be explicitly direct with them depending on the situation. Um, but I think it was scary at the beginning feeling like you were going to sever ties with people, but I'm learning and much in an hour discussing this last night that it's interesting because the people who want to be in your life will, and the people who are additive and multiplying in your life will always find a way back and you and theirs. And it's not as big of a deal as you make it in your head. Like we mentioned, community is so important to our mental health, to how we go about our days. And so just be fiercely protective of your tribe and your community. Love that. On that note, I want to talk about Real, which is an amazing company that you're building with Ariella and team. And y'all are having such a tremendous impact on mental health for us in America and would love to hear more about what you're doing there. I would love to, I would love to share it. I want to I'll start off with actually sharing that. So Ariella was actually my student. That's actually how I met yes. her. So um, through my lab, I teach a course at Stanford. I love that story. And, um, yeah, yeah. and so she was, uh, she was my student many years, many years ago now. And, uh, you know, even then, I think I, what I really loved about her was, you know, I think so much of change in mental health and what a lot of people are doing and, and well, in a well-intended way is really thinking about incremental change and little things that we can do to make things better. Even at that time, when I met her, when she was a student many years ago, she really had this sense of wanting to transform what mental health is. And one of, the, one, of her, one of the things she says often is, how do we take 10 steps back and really like think about what's going on and how do we like transform the system and, and not try to just keep looking at what's currently there, but understanding yeah. what are the flaws in that system and, and not just having to stick to that, but really trying to redefine, reimagine what mental health can look like. So that, and, and to the point of healthcare is really just so traditional and making change often feels like you're just, you know, moving something one inch, right? And because mm -hmm. it's such an ingrained system, it is really hard to change systems, but it has yeah. to be done, right? And, and, and you met, I, yeah. think, I think both healthcare is very behind other fields like, you know, finance or, or transportation, let's say. And I would say mental health historically has been even mm. further behind other areas of healthcare. And so that's why it is like so tremendously important that we, you know, that we really yeah. rethink what it can look like. So let me tell you about real and what we're doing. And, and I'll start with really our values around what we're, what we want to be able to, like, like what, what's the world we want to be able to create. And if we think of, there are a few key issues, I think, when we think about one of the big problems in mental health that we're trying to solve for. Now, if we take a step back and think, the first, I think, is that we know that the scale of the problem is huge. There's so many people who struggle with mental health. And ultimately, the current way that we deal with how to get mental health treatment is that you see a clinician. That's really great. And I'm a, I'm a practicing clinician myself. I think that's a really important part of the solution. But what we also know is that, for example, I'll give you, I'll give you a statistic. If we look at the United States, for example, we know that at any given moment, about 20% of people have a diagnosable mental health condition. I gave that, I put that stress on diagnosable because right. um, that just means that they're at that end of the spectrum where they actually have a diagnosis. What we also know, and this is probably like the second thing I'll talk about is that, but there are a lot of people who still benefit from treatment and benefit from addressing 
who aren't diagnosable. Even let's say, let's think about something like diabetes. I don't have diabetes, but all the things that are necessary to address diabetes, good nutrition, exercise, right? Those are things that are really important to do. And my parents have diabetes. So it's really important for that I think preventatively, how do I prevent diabetes? We shouldn't be waiting until I have diabetes for me to start getting that care, right? So I put that in perspective of the 20% is important, but it's really important to think about everyone needs to be thinking about how to prevent mental illness. That's the second, I'll talk about that in just a second. But so if we think about um, the fact that we know there's this um, um, a huge burden of disease, meaning so many people have this, um, have are struggling with mental illness. And then we have this broader thing of really everyone needs to be thinking about mental illness in a preventative fashion. Um, yet yeah. we only have very few people who are actually able to treat. So the, the statistics I want to throw out there is that we know that was, I said that 20%, right? Ha- about habit. Yeah. Um, the number of therapists, and this is thinking, not, not saying psychiatrists, but like therapists who can actually treat in America. If we optimize, so for example, like one of the problems we have is geographic distribution. There are a lot of therapists mm-hmm. in New York, San Francisco, Boston, and but not cities, necessarily versus, rural America. Exactly. Right. And so let's say, let's say we can fix that problem. Let's say things are completely optimized and, and everything like that. Even if we optimize all of that, the maximum number of people that could get treated is 7% by mm. therapy. So due to the supply of therapists? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's where we are today. We have a huge shortage of therapists. It's even worse for mm-hmm. child therapy. For child, for children, children and adolescents, there are even fewer mm. that 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 we have that we have. So, but I say that because what that means is that when we have twenty percent who have a diagnosable illness, many, many more, if not like you know the rest of society, that benefits from prevention, yet only seven yeah. percent that can really treat. Already, that shows that the equation is not working, right? There's and a so, huge mismatch. Yeah, there's a huge huge mismatch, and so. We can't, so while part of the solution needs is, and how historically things have been, you go see a doctor, right? That's important and wonderful. But we can't only be building for solutions where seeing that person is the solution because we know that's inherently flawed and that we need to be doing much more where we need to be thinking mm-hmm. outside of just the human capacity there and thinking what are other solutions that can help treat people where they don't necessarily have to go see a doctor to get that help. So one thing there is that supply demand mismatch. The second big problem is I mentioned, you know, we talked about the disease, but what about everyone else? And I, I gave that diabetes example, right? Which is if we look at the way that mental health is treated today, really we're only addressing disease when people are in crisis. And I think if you look at oftentimes, like when are people ultimately addressing their mental health? It's really only when they're really, really struggling. And just to give an example, oftentimes this is someone like that you wait until someone is like having suicidal thoughts, right? It's like, oh, I'm a little Um, bit depressed. It's I'm so depressed that I want to end my life, right? And not, and and even, or thinking about substance use. It's like, not that I'm drinking a couple glasses of wine. It's that like, I'm like, you know, drinking so much or, or that someone might be using might be using a su- substances and, you know, you say that term like hit rock bottom. We shouldn't be ra- waiting mm-hmm. until people have hit rock bottom to get them help, right? Like people go to rehab once 
they, you know, have a DUI or something. Like that's not the way to be thinking about things. If we think about something like cancer, you're not going to wait until like, no. you know, you have this massive tumor on your hand, right? Like people go in for no. screenings and they look at moles and they look to see and you want to catch something early. So that, that whole thing is a, like a flaw with the way that we're thinking about things. And we want to think about things where people are addressing things in a preventative way and what we say early intervention, which is that when you're struggling a little, you start to get health mm-hmm. and treatment and you're not waiting. Like until- you said at the beginning with the stomach ache, when would you go, go after three days or so? So as soon as you feel like you're not feeling great mentally, go see your primary physician. Exactly. Exactly. So number one is, um, is prevention. Number two is that we're not reliant on that supply demand mismatch. Number three is around affordability which is, you know, I think for a lot of people, one, this is an issue with health insurance. Health insurance is still not really covering mental health care in the way that it is for physical health. And we've had policies passed that say that there's parity and and equality, but it's still not the reality of how things get treated. And so, um, you know, right now it's still oftentimes expensive to get care or health insurance isn't covering mental health. Um, So basically, Mm -hmm. how do we make sure that care is affordable and anyone is able to access care, regardless of your finances. Um, And that you're able to do it in a way that's conducive to modern life. So for example, one of the things we talk about is, you know, if you try to see a therapist, oftentimes you have an appointment at like 2 p.m. on Monday. But when are like you really struggling, probably at 2 p.m. on Monday, you're thinking about like, (laughs) Oh, what is, you know, what are your student? Like, what's my homework assignment? Or, yeah, exactly. You're thinking, yeah. about, what do I have to deliver for work at three o'clock? Right. You're not thinking yeah. about like my traumatic, like the trauma I had in childhood or like my anxiety, you know, the anxiety that like keeps me awake at night. If you think about like 11 p.m. on, at, on when on Thursday, that's when you're like really stressed and anxious. And that's when you actually need to help, but no one's there to help you with that. Yeah. So that, I want to kind of give that context. Those are all the things that we're really thinking about. These are the problems in the way that mental health is addressed and what we want to change. So then in the solution that we created with Real, um, that's actually all, everything that we put into it. So basically what Real looks like is it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a, an app and it's a membership yeah. where, and, and the reason it's a membership where basically um, all the same tools and things that we might do in a one-on-one session, if you think about almost like like Peloton, like it's, it's like almost like Peloton for mental health, where um, therapists, like just like in Peloton, you have a fitness instructor who is leading these classes, and you can take this class and and you know improve your in this case your physical exercise. Um, we have therapists who have actually uh, thought about specific topics and programs that you might be dealing with, like stress or anxiety or relationships or body image mm-hmm. issues. And you can actually learn from them directly. But instead of having to talk to them one-on-one in a therapist's office, you can do that through video and audio. And actually there's a whole kind of program, like a, like a class almost that they created where you learn from them. You can do exercises and um, worksheets and feedback and kind of um, go into your uh, everyday life and you basically get like a little worksheet of, 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 a, of a, a prompt to do and you can journal yeah. and, and things like that. And basically, all, and, and this is all basically what we did is we looked at all the things that we know work really well for patients and what does all the evidence say works well and how can we then package that into something that you can then do on your own time in the way that is best suited for you, right? So, you know, we are all people who are living on our phones and ultimately like at, you know, 10 p.m. on Wednesday to be able to do this 
when you need it the most. And moreover, Mm -hmm. that you can go back and learn from it. Like, let's say I did something that really helps me rethink my relationship with food. I can now bookmark that and go back to it such that then when I see that cookie in front of me, I can actually pull up the app and be like, wait a second, here's why I know I don't want to actually eat that cookie or why I realize I can have a bite of the cookie. And that's going to be enough to make me feel good and fulfilled and like satiated. I don't need to eat the whole cookie, Mm -hmm. right? Um, In a way that again, like like one-on-one therapy doesn't actually necessarily help in that same way. Um, And so really a lot of this is about how do you give people the skills that they need to really understand their thoughts and their behaviors and their feelings and get the skills and tools to make these changes in their everyday life um, in a way that feels really empowering. So, so one, as I mentioned, cost, um, the membership is about like $14 or $14, $15 a month over the course of a year. It's actually less than what one therapy appointment would be. So one therapy appointment is about like $200. I love that. So for less than what one one one-on-one therapy appointment, you get an entire year of mental health treatment basically. That's incredible. Um, Then two, it's all evidence-based. So all the best scientific knowledge that we know has gone into this. It's all led by therapists. Um, It's also really like you can personalize it to like what you're dealing with, right? So whether that's body Mm -hmm. or depression or relationships or communication, you can deal with all that. Um, In addition to these classes, we have what we call moments, which is like these five minutes kind of things that you can do. Of Maybe it's, you know, like things where you just need something quick and quick and simple where you realize, you know, you need to, maybe it's like a mindfulness exercise or gratitude or some quick problem that you want to be able to solve that you have these moments to be able to address. Um, and then I think one of the most important things, actually, there, there, I guess there are two other things I'll talk about. One is community. We know that community is tremendously important. And so really being able to connect with other people and learn from them, share your own experiences. And we know that inherently those connections are so important in mental health. Um, I love and, that you involved community in this. I think it's and really just having just like this that constant blue. companion. Right. Exactly. And your peers who you can lean on and it doesn't always have to be a therapist who maybe feels like they're on a different level from you and you can have people who you can talk to. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Perfect. And then the final thing is actually, I would say my favorite, which is tracking and data. And the reason why this is actually my favorite because I think that it's not at all a part of what most people's experience is like with their mental health. Um, which is, again, I'll use mm-hmm. the diabetes example. If someone has diabetes, almost, almost all, if not all diabetics, they, they, they're tracking their blood sugar and they know what their blood sugar levels are throughout the day. They're, they're using that information then to make choices. So for example, they're measuring their blood sugar and they're looking to see what it is. And then they, they're making decisions. They're figuring out how much can I eat? How many, you know, how much sugar can I have in my day? Because here's what right. my blood sugar looks like. In mental health, we actually have a lot of those same numbers, but people just don't engage in those mm-hmm. numbers. And that's what we're trying to change. And, you know, I get, at the beginning, I talked about the PHQ-9 and the GAD-7, which are the kind of standard yeah. metrics we have around depression and anxiety. That's the starting point to really understand if you're depressed or anxious, how depressed are you? How anxious are you? And really being able to understand those numbers and figure out like, because the reason why this is so important is a lot of mental health is subjective. It's like, I don't feel, I feel really anxious and being able to give numbers to that and actually quantify, here's how anxious you are. Really grounding. So grounding. It it decreases stigma. Actually, we know that being able to have to it 
completely decrease the stigma and it helps people really understand it's not my fault. It's not like something, you know, it, it, a lot of the, ne- the negative messaging around mental health and, you know, just, oh, yeah, work harder, you know, and you'll get better, right? Like that, that yeah. sort of thing. No, this is a very real yeah. issue, it's a right? Real... Here are the numbers behind right. it. And here's how you can get better. And you can use the numbers to track your progress. And you can then see, oh, your... exercise today. My anxiety, went, my numbers went mm-hmm. down. And I see when I start my day exercising, I always feel better. Right. So things like that, I think are tremendously important. And what I want to see change in mental health is that we all start to engage in those numbers much more. And I think that's going to be a really empowering thing for folks. I love that. Everyone check out Real. I am going to go sign up for Real myself. It's so great to have something with not just the therapy, but also something you can engage with day to day. My last question for you, Nina, is stigma and what message do you have for people who are still hesitating and engaging with getting the mental health care that they need? Whenever people ask me about mental health and what are the problems in mental health, I actually say that stigma is problems one, two, and three. And really yeah. just trying to get at it's it's that big of an issue. You know, it permeates every element of society and everything from, you know, delaying getting help, but then even when get help. Like I have so many patients come in and sort of say like, oh, I want to do therapy, but not medication, or I want to do medication, but not therapy. And there's stigma behind that because there's this sense of, you know, I shouldn't need to take a medication, that stigma, or I can take right. medication, but should I should be strong to enough to someone about it. I should be strong enough. Exactly. Right. So I think stigma is just still such a huge, huge issue. And I, what I'll actually say is that, you know, one of the best things about the pandemic in some ways, I'll say the silver lining of the pandemic is that the way that we are talking about mental health today is really what I thought it would be like 10 years from now. We've had this huge acceleration in increasing stigma. It's wonderful. The number of people who have Mm -hmm. come out to talk about their own mental health struggles, the, the nuance and the way that we are talking about mental health, like so many more people are talking about it. They're more open about it. All of that has been wonderful. And, and I'm just so grateful for that. And yet there's so much more progress that needs to be made, but it's really important mm-hmm. to acknowledge how far we've come in just a couple of years. Um, all that said, you know, there is still, there is still a lot. And I think what I would say is, um, you know, you know, for me, I actually on my LinkedIn, like actually the first thing I talk about is my own lived experience with depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I, I have done that very purposely because of how big I see that stigma is and wanting people to see that, um, you know, wanting to be really proactive about trying to change stigma and decrease stigma and get out there that, you know, one, I think it's because it's something I'm proud of, you know, in the way that when people yeah. come, they're LinkedIn, right? Here is what I've done. Yeah. And I you got through that. Exactly. And, and, and also as an example of such a highly accomplished woman who went to all these institutions, has brought up and made all these amazing projects, is impacting all these lives, and also had to go through this and went through it and talks about it. And it doesn't make you any less or more. It just makes you who you are. Exactly. That you, you perfectly nailed it. That's exactly it. And for people to see that you can do all this and have depression and have anxiety, um, and that that is so important. And so for people who are struggling, really, I think, you know, I, I still think that 11 year statistic always is something that I find to be very jarring of realizing that that is so much of why we think about it in this way and why 
I and many, many people struggle to get help is because we have all these external messages that make it hard and that we're, we are thinking about it differently from the stomach ache or from you know, a mole or a cancerous lesion or something. And to recognize that it really is the same. And that, so, so one is there is like, like, you know, we know that we're dealing with all this too late, but then the other thing I would just say is, you know, going to a doctor and saying, here's what I'm dealing with. There really is no harm there. And yeah, there's really only good things that can happen in a way, right? Like to be able to talk to someone and for them to help you understand what's going on they'll give different treatment options. You can make that choice of if you want treatment and what treatment you engage in. Um, but really just to try to start having those conversations and even just for a doctor to know how you're feeling, I think that's something where, again, like you're, you don't lose anything there and it only really helps you start to then really better understand things. So I guess that, that's probably one of the ways I would start. And then I'll also just really just use my personal example of when I finally did get help and treatment, like in my mind, I was just like, oh, I just wish I had done this sooner. And I think really everyone right. would, who has had that would say the same thing of, I just wish I had done this sooner. Um, and look at how, you know, being able to get your life back is just the, like you, you owe that to yourself. This is about you realizing yeah. your potential. Um, and, and uh, it, you know, it's the biggest gift to be able to live the life that you want to be living and mental health. What one of the things I say is like mental health is the biggest thief of human potential. And so being able to get even 1% of that back gives you, you back. I love that. And I recently read something that really stuck with me is this was a story of this woman who had experienced depression and anxiety and had taken a long time, meaning years to go seek help and she was describing similar to you that within two weeks of starting to take medication, she just felt so light. It felt like this whole burden had been lifted off of her shoulders. And she had this comment, which I found so fascinating of, wait, people just wake up naturally feeling this way. And why would I delay feeling this way? So I hope folks can take that and your lived experience in this amazing conversation. And if you're feeling any sort of anxiety or depression, please just talk to a friend or go see your physician or go check out Real and get better. And we love you. Nina, before I let you go, you already alluded to this. In 10 years, where do you hope that we'll be in terms of mental health care as a society? I just said, I think one of the next big things to address is equity and really looking at a lot of the disparities that we have in equity as that relates to so many facets of, you know, identity, whether that's race or gender or, or you know, aspects of, of, of identity in, in multiple facets. Um, I think that's really one of the next next big things. And also, you know, I think we talked a lot about the U.S. Looking at other countries as well is, is really tremendously important. So one, I think, would be really being able to decrease the differences that we have in terms of what equity looks like. And then, and then secondly mm-hmm. is truly a world where mental health is just such a part of daily discussion daily life. Yeah. So we are dealing with like physical health is like physical health is that truly we've eliminated that barrier, that false divide that we have between mental health and physical health and that it is all the same. And just like I go to my doctor to get my pap smear or, you know, someone goes for a mammogram or something that we're doing that same thing around mental health or like looking at it from a prevention angle and that, and the final thing I'll say, and this is, I'll actually call on with real 
one of the uh, one of our the lines we say is that we're not just trying to normalize, you know, addressing your mental health and and treatment. We're trying to celebrate it. And I think that that big that's that. huge distinction, right? Where right now, because of stigma, I think it is it really is a big deal actually to normalize it and say it's okay. I do this, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Right. But, but to go actually to that next step where it's not just normalizing, but actually celebrating it and saying like, good for you for doing this. Yeah. Just like, you know, on social media, when someone like runs a marathon, right. Everyone's like, you're amazing. That's fantastic. Right? Yeah. That same level of support and enthusiasm and encouragement for getting a diagnosis, for taking medication, for doing therapy, for, you know, all, all these sorts of things that it is, you're doing something good for you for celebrating people for that so that we can really feel good about the fact that you're investing in yourself and improving your own health. That is the best thing you can do for yourself. And so, so that's what I want to see in 10 years that truly we as a society have changed such that we are celebrating, you know, addressing one's mental health. Let's go get it. Nina, my cup is always so much fuller after talking to you. I love you. You are such a light. Thank you for everything you're doing for mental health care. And I'd love to have you again sometime soon. And come visit us in Austin. <laughs> I will. I will absolutely be there. I will be trying out that amazing barbecue. And thank you. I just have to say, I'm so grateful to you. I can already tell you you are going to be my gratitude entry tomorrow morning. So expect a text tomorrow morning Amazing. because I am so grateful for, to be able to talk. And um, you, you already, as I said, you've changed part of my routine. I'm going to start adding joy into my daily routine and start the day. And we'll be thinking about you for that. I think that's a tremendous addition to the world. And, and thank you for doing this. And thank you for having, making the space for Power Hour and just really having these conversations. I think it's so important. And also can't wait to hear Jordan next time. And I'm really looking forward to that. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like what you hear, leave a review and share.